yourself, do you know where your milk comes from? Remember, the next time you're in the dairy aisle, reach for Booth Brothers. Since... Hi, this is Rachel from the Kellogg Hubbard Library. And Tristan from Onion River Sports. It's almost time for the 12th annual Onion River Century Ride to benefit children's literacy at the Kellogg Hubbard Library. Join us Saturday, July 25th for what Vermont Sports calls the best century ride in the state. We have three routes that start and end at the Montpelier Recreation Field. We have a new 40-mile ride to Lake Elmore and back. A 68-mile ride that goes out to Hardwick, across to Morrisville, and down the newly paved Route 12 back to Montpelier. And a full 111-mile century ride that goes through the Northeast Kingdom with gorgeous mountain views. A fun group of cyclists of all levels, scrumptious food stops and barbecue. And a terrific cause. All proceeds benefit children's literacy at the Kellogg Hubbard Library. Help us inspire the love of reading and unlock the power of imagination. Register today at onionriver.com or kelloghubbard.org. Since 1997, RB Technologies has been quietly earning business clients' trust and would be honored to earn yours. Join them on July 24th from 1 till 4 p.m. for their 18th anniversary open house and customer appreciation day. There'll be food, friends, and free e-cycling. RB Technologies, Route 14, East Montpelier. It's time to get the story behind the story. Interviews with newsmakers, newsbreakers, and your phone calls. Radio Vermont presents The Mark Johnson Show. Thank you, Jim Connie. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Thanks for tuning in. Beautiful day out there today. Thanks for spending part of it with us. Coming up on the program, we're going to get right down to business. Uh, Alan Gilbert, who's the executive director of the Vermont chapter of the ACLU, is joining us here. So we're going to be talking about some uh, issues involving privacy, surveillance. Uh, we'll even delve into this issue involving the Confederate flag, uh, gay marriage, and also uh, we'll talk about medical records among the uh, the items that uh, delve into the world of privacy, and we would, and we'll also, uh, we had a pretty robust discussion the last time Alan was on talking about driver's license versus driver privilege cards, or, or is that the right? Is that what yep. driver yeah, privilege? Yep. So we'll chat about that and more. And of course, we'll welcome your phone calls. You can reach us at two four four seventeen seventy seven. That's our local number in Central Vermont. And toll-free, you can reach us at 1-877-291-8255. Alan, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here, Mark. So your organization is now against fireworks? I mean, you know, you, you, you're really that negative on everything out there, and now you're down on fireworks. Yeah, I guess we're, not, we're into a puritanical streak. If it feels good, uh, we're against it. Okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right, let's, uh, let's actually start in Rutland. Uh, what's going on in the police department down there? Well, I just heard uh, recently that Rutland is going to be one of 21 communities nationwide that is part of a national initiative that comes from uh, President Obama's interest in trying to make police actions more accountable and more transparent. Rutland is going to, according to their, their, I guess, acting chief, Scott Tucker, is going to be looking at the way it keeps data and who it makes it available to. And the idea is to have closer ties with the community so the community understands what police are doing and the police realize that they are part of the community and what they do is of interest to the community. So where are the areas you think there are holes right now that they could improve that? 
I think generally in Vermont there's a lot of misunderstanding about access to police records and part of that or a large part of it goes back to when the police records exemption used to be that if something was a police record by definition the public could not have access to it if it was part of a part of an investigation and almost everything police do when somebody requested a record uh, turned out to be an investigation. So that was changed two years ago. We uh, spent a lot of time in <clears throat> Senate Judiciary Committee, which is where the bill was really done. Um, Senator Sears recognized the, the importance of the public having more access to police records while still protecting uh, uh, legitimate privacy interests. So Vermont basically changed to the Federal uh, Freedom of Information Act standard, which has as a default uh, police records are public unless one of the following six things can be shown. And it's things like protecting uh, privacy of confidential informants, right. you know, protecting the right of a fair trial, uh, unwarranted invasion of personal privacy. Police have to show one of those things before they say you can't have the record or you can't have that bit of the record. So I think when, when something like body cams, for instance, comes up, this is right. th these questions are coming up a lot now. I actually think our current law in Vermont is going to go a long way to answering when the public can or more specifically cannot have access to body cam footage because we have a law in place that lays out a balancing test between the public's right to know and legitimate privacy interests and I think all we have to do is apply that law. You know I was thinking though when you talk about these body cams and the amount of footage that will be stored somewhere and, and we've talked before about all the information that's stored in some of these federal facilities just in terms yeah. of databases. What's right. going to be a reasonable way to deal with that? I think what's going to happen is the editing software for video footage like that is going to become much more robust. And the time that police say they now may have to put into editing out a child who's in the corner of a of a room where police uh, go into somebody's house or the front porch or whatnot, editing out an image like that or blurring, it's going to become a lot easier. Yeah. Uh, there's going to be a lot of a lot of need for this because I think body cameras are going to become ubiquitous and maybe uh, a a tool that police have with them all the time and it's expected they have them and that they're running them all the time. So I think people are going to have to recognize that there has to be an easy way to edit out some of the information for which there really should be um, protection uh, for privacy reasons. You know, I have to tell you, part of me feels like these body cams are sort of a, of a failure, you know, that we've kind of failed as a society. They almost feel like some one of those movies, uh, you know, Logan's Run or something in the future where all the police have cameras on them. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, and I think a lot of this has been due to police feeling they don't want to be watched, which I think actually is totally reversed from the way they should feel because most of the studies so far that have been done on the use of body cams or the use of cameras on tasers shows that there are fewer complaints against officers and in the complaints that are filed um, an officer is just as likely to be exonerated as to be uh, criticized for doing the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. So I, I think actually it's a good tool for police. And just like the recording of custodial interrogations, which Vermont now has a law police have to do in certain right. situations, those were found to more than more than likely actually help police uh, in their work. I think we're going to find the same thing with body cam footage. Well, I would suspect, like everything, most studies show that 
behavior is different when there's another person in the room or there's a camera. That's true. Not only do you find the story that you hear from both sides might be a little bit different than they either remember it or think it was, you do have people changing their behavior because they know they're being watched. What do you think is going to be a reasonable amount of time to hold on to this stuff? Well, that's a good question. You know, up to now, it's been answered by the fact that storage became so prohibitively expensive after a while that keeping just a week of this stuff was too much. But, you know, memory just becomes cheaper and cheaper by the day. There's some statistic. I, I think I still have it right in my brain. In 1980, a gigabyte of memory cost half a million dollars to produce. Now it costs a nickel. So, you know, <laughs> you take a statistic like that, yeah. and you know where this is headed. It yeah. just means more and more data is going to be, say, for a longer and longer period of time. And I think now it's actually more expensive to sort through and get rid of data because of the time you have to spend into, in, into going through it. So, if you're the NSA, you just build a huge facility somewhere out in the middle of Utah with tons and tons of computers... You just plan to keep this stuff forever. And you never know. I mean, you, you know, you sort of say, well, maybe there'll be that one time you can pull something out there. And that gets into the whole question of, do you start building haystacks so large that you actually can never find the needle? Or it becomes so expensive to find the needle, it'd be much better to hire 10 cops to be out there in the beat doing the traditional kind of policing, perhaps be more effective than banks and banks of computer and computers in the Utah desert. Mm-hmm. You know, it was bizarre. I told you before the show, we just my family did a little traveling, and one of the places we went was London. And mm-hmm. I, honest to God, you know, I felt like I was, uh, I felt like I was Harrison Ford on the run or something. I mean, there's a camera everywhere. Oh, you were being watched continuously. There's a great uh, British television series, I forget the exact name of it, that is about that very topic, where police are trying to use the cameras to find somebody specific. And this thing is about five years old. So now facial recognition software has gotten so much better yeah. that your image now can be tracked as a digital image and not something that police have to look physically with their eyes to try and find you in different places. But you can you can pretty well guess if you were in London, there's a record of where you were much of the time. You know, and they do this thing where when you go into the subway, you... you you swipe your card and then you got to swipe it to get out. Right. So they, you know, they know yeah. literally where you've been. Yep. This is a totally different topic, totally uh, random change of topic here for you, but you're, you know, happy to always do that. I just got an email from somebody yesterday that, w- that was a link to, there's this sort of new, and I'm putting my air quotes out here, newspaper, which prints the pictures of all the people that have been arrested in Vermont. What do you make of this? Well, this, in some ways, this is not new, printing pictures, mugshots from police blotters. I guess what's new is somebody is doing this as a concentrated single place where you can get this information. When you think about it, that's kind of been happening already with, say, this, the online sex offender registry. Now what uh, some police departments started doing about a year ago, I think South Burlington was the one. In fact, the New York Times did a story about this after seven days did the original story. Um, that they were, South Burlington police were putting up mug shots of anybody who they arrested. I think when we get into this area of what I think of as more public shaming than anything else we've lost track of 
what it is we as a society ultimately want to do in the criminal justice system. The whole idea of catching somebody who's committed a crime and sentencing them is to, as they say in the correct name of the corrections department, to correct their behavior. Because society has a self-interest in making sure that person at some point re-enters society as a productive citizen. When you start marginalizing people by putting their photographs up all over and people just assume as soon as you see a mugshot, this person is bad, we want nothing to do with him or her, you have really subverted the public policy goal of what the correction system, the criminal justice system is all about. So when I look at, say, a newspaper doing this, supposedly it's, it must be an online publication, mm-hmm. All I can think of, it's for profit. I mean, there's no other justification. Um, I remember seven or eight years ago when there was a sex offender uh, online registry study committee, the agreement by everybody was that there's no evidence that online registries increase public safety, but because the public wants it, the legislature was going to agree to have to create an online registry. I think there's very little evidence these registries, if you want to think of a mugshot registry as such, really does anything to increase public safety. And I would argue in the long run it actually does the opposite by subverting the goal of what the criminal justice system is. It just appeals to some you know, base part of people. Hey, we've had wanted posters, you know, it's yeah. sort of an iconic yeah. image of the Wild West, right? Yeah. You know, wanted uh, uh, a big bad Bart and and uh, <laughs> there's just something about that, that, yeah. that appeals to the American sense of black and white, good and evil and all that kind of stuff. Alright, so where, is there a line in here that you would draw? I mean, you're somebody who's all in favor of public disclosure and uh, information getting out there, so on, there, there's that, but on the other hand, you know, this idea of public shaming, I hear you. I mean, it's kind of it's sort of pathetic in some respects. Yeah, I think it's a little bit different when you have a public agency doing this versus a private entity that's getting the photographs and the information from a public agency <clears throat> to the private entity that's doing that. I would say, um, I would question whether that's really the way they want to make their money. It, it just seems like you're taking advantage of a class of people who did not probably realize the collateral consequences when they agreed to a plea plea deal mm-hmm. and all of a sudden their lives are spinning out of control because everybody knows them because their mugshot is up in this place they can't get a job they can't find housing their kids are being harassed because their dad or their mom now is viewed as uh, some kind of ex-pariah yeah. yeah it's i mean there's a real price to pay and it's not the purveyor of that information that's paying the price and i i, I think it's that's not right. So should the police not give out those photos to anybody? Well, there are times when you want those photos to be out, obviously, because if you're looking for that person, you know, if that person is wanted for a crime. but you know what I mean. Yeah. I think you have to ask what the public policy is to giving out the photograph when the name is already given out. And I don't think anybody would disagree that when you're charged or convicted of crime, your name is not published. Right. You know, there's something... You turn up the heat a lot more when you publish a photograph, as we're all finding out in our own personal lives whether we've committed a crime or not. You know, if the wrong picture of you gets out on Facebook, your professional reputation can really be damaged. Right. If you're a politician, your political reputation, politicians are now all worried about selfies in this campaign and what those look like. So I think it's something we all have to think about. Um, you know, what, what kinds of privacy of, of our images is reasonable 
uh, especially online. Yeah, I mean that photo of you with that that plethora of fireworks kind of undermined that. Yeah, the wasn't anti- that man? That's like a, That's like just saying I'm guilty, huh? A big grin and everything else. There we go. Now there was this discussion that was going on. There's been some controversy about the police and and whether or not they should release the blood alcohol content on, on DWI arrests. What do you think of that? Well, my understanding was the state police uh, have decided to do this, and it had been their practice before to do it. The question was whether, I think it was the state's attorneys who did not want the police to be doing it. Some state's attorneys. Some state's attorneys. Um, Again, if you apply... If you apply the the state's public records act to this question, you would look for one of those six criteria by which a record could be withheld. So I think if police said it's going to inhibit your right to a fair trial, that might be a legitimate claim. But I think to say as a category of records, Mm -hmm. you can't have any blood alcohol... I think that's not a good way to approach the question. I really think people should be applying the public records, um, the so-called C-5 police records exemption. This gets a little bit difficult, Mark, because when you cross over into court records, the courts have their own rules about release of information. So it gets a little bit difficult sometimes to determine who's the custodian of the records and whether this is uh, the public records uh, law applies or court, uh, court record policies apply. Yeah, I mean, there seems to be the controversy or the question seems to be prior to the arraignment. Mm-hmm. You know, once the arraignment happens, I don't know, it seems like that's pretty much fair game at that point. Yeah, I think that's right. Unless, for some reason, the uh, prosecutor or the defendant's lawyer would move to seal the records. And, I mean, there might be times when that actually would be legitimate and then the judge could decide whether or not to seal. Yeah. But I, it's, it would seem to me a state's attorney, if they're really serious about not having these records released, if they can show it's going to inhibit the person's right to a fair trial. It's probably a reason to have it to have it not uh, disclosed. I remember there was a period of time, and there were a couple of district court judges that would automatically seal any oh, murder yeah. affidavit. George Ellison down in Windsor County, a couple of others. Yeah, I mean, when I worked at the Herald in the 1970s, there were all sorts of practices like that where I think courts courts felt that they could make their own rules in individual courts and that's largely disappeared i think the judges we have today are pretty sensitive to to these questions Two four four seventeen seventy seven is our local number you can also reach us on our toll-free lines at 877-291-8255 we've been talking with alan gilbert he's the executive director of the vermont chapter of the aclu let's stick on this topic um, sort of related here medical records what's going on with that well, access to medical records is a really, really big topic. We've been following it for a long time because we've been worried about the privacy of medical records that are kept in big e-medical records databases. I think most people don't realize that your medical records and my medical records and everybody's medical records in this state, uh, if they're in e-format, which most of ours are now, they've already been loaded to the cloud. Uh, they've already been aggregated in one big database. Uh, so when you go to the doctor these days or check into the hospital, if you haven't already, you'll probably ask if you consent to the um, to your uh, to 
uh, physicians having access to your records online. And what you're actually doing is you're giving what's called a one-time global consent if you do this, which means anybody who claims they have authorization uh, to access your records because they're treating you will be able to access your records. Fact of the matter is, even without the authorization, the records can still be accessed. Legally, they can be accessed under a doctrine that's sometimes called break the glass. You come into the emergency room. Right. Uh, you haven't given consent, but yet doctors feel it's just incredibly important to know exactly if you have um, a medical problem that they need to know about before they start operating on you. So they can break the glass, go into your records without your authorization. And then, of course, there is authorization that's not, um, uh, I'm sorry, there's access that's not authorized. And that's when somebody simply asserts that they have your permission to access uh, your records and they go do it. There's nothing in the Vermont Information Technology Leaders database exchange system, Vitals database exchange system, that requires you to put in a passcode or anything like that. This is not an ATM system. Hmm. All you're doing is once you're sitting at your desk in the doctor's office as a receptionist nurse or whatever, um, you say, you assert that you have the authority to access Mark Johnson's or Alan Gilbert's records and you're in. Wow. Wow. Um, and there are certain levels, depending on what you do in the practice, a doctor would have a higher level of access to records than a receptionist would. But generally speaking, there's nothing stopping you except a button saying, I assert I have authority to do this. Wow. Where this is all leading is, last this past session, we helped to introduce a bill, S-18, a broad privacy bill. It had a number of privacy issues, part of it. One of them was medical records privacy. We want, uh, because of the way the system, we think, doesn't give consumers, patients enough protection. We at least want patients to have the right to bring a civil lawsuit when there is unauthorized access to their records. Uh, and that's going to be talked about. That bill wasn't taken up in full form this past session, this past uh, year, I should say. In the second half of the biennium, the Senate Judiciary Committee is actually going to hold some special hearings in October where they're going to look at this bill uh, in much greater detail. And they'll look at medical records privacy. They're also going to be looking at drones. They're also going to be looking uh, at access to electronic records generally, such as emails um, and banks. So it's, it's, going, it's going to be an interesting, um, an interesting uh, set of hearings. Boy, you know, the way you describe that medical records and the access, I mean, it just sounds like it's an enormous number of people that could get in. You know, any, any one breach is enough. Yeah, and for people to say the system is secure and there there won't be breaches is, I mean, that it's it's impossible to have total security of anything that's online in digital form. I mean, the NSA has been hacked for goodness sakes. The NSA has obviously had data stolen. You know, it's it's Mr. Snowden made off with all kinds of data. Um, so it's only a matter of time until uh, medical records are hacked. I mean, they've been hacked in other states already. Um, through insurance companies and some Vermonters medical records or some medical information has been hacked through insurance company breaches. Mm -hmm. So people should really realize there is no such thing as totally secure digital records of any sort. It just doesn't exist. Well, I can just picture the people that are publishing that newspaper with the shaming mug shots could want to get somebody in the medical community to give them a little information if, you know, when you become uh, Senator Gilbert and, you know, and you're in the hospital, then they can get information about you. Uh, that's one of the things. I mean, frankly, 
it, at one point, um, there was a there was an effort by private vendors like Google and Microsoft to have patient-centered control of records where you essentially would upload all your medical files mm. to a secure online site that one of them would would maintain and presumably have very high levels of privacy. And that has not come to be because there's too much of a feeling that this has to be controlled by the medical community and insurance companies. But I think in many ways the safest thing to do is to is to have all your information on a on a, a thumb drive that you always have possession of, and you carry that around. If people want to see your medical information, you have direct control of it. Two four four seventeen seventy seven is our local number. Toll free eight seven seven two nine one eight two five five. I didn't hear a denial in there that you're not running in twenty sixteen. That means you're considering it. I'm running away. Okay, let's go to Middlesex. Norma, good morning. Good morning. Um, number one was the medical records. Now you do have access to your medical records online. Yeah, but I think his point is so does everybody else. Yeah, but if somebody has access to your computer. No, I think if they can get into your account is what he's saying. Yeah, the yeah. difference is that all of our medical records that have been online and different, you know, your doctor's office kind of thing, they've right. already been gathered and they have been put online in in the cloud in a big database that's oh, yeah. maintained worked, by Vital. Yeah, I worked with an organization that did that. Okay, yeah, well we then you know all about this. Database online. Yep. It, it, Homeless the, shelters are doing that. Yeah, the the original plan was to not have a central database warehouse, mm -hmm. but was to have an exchange so that when you went into the hospital for an operation, your hospital would query where there might be records relevant right. to your health, and then it would go out and seek those records from the different doctors or the healthcare facilities that right. you've been to and pull those records in. It wasn't going to a central database. And the second uh, point is the criminal records. There is now a magazine out, or newspaper. Yeah, we were talking about this. Yeah, yeah well, I was shopping at the time. So uh, I picked one up the other day to just see what it was about. And um, they also give the alcohol on the back and on the DWIs. So um, it was... It was something I didn't feel that the general population needed to know. Can I ask where you picked this up? I picked it up at, I, I think it was um, Grand Isle at the um, A and B, I think it was. Yeah. The little store at Grand Isle that I shop at. Yeah. And it was free, you didn't pay for it? Oh, no, 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 four dollars. Oh, you paid four dollars to find out which of your neighbors might... Oh my gosh! Oh, they they're succeeding in getting people to fork over money to pay for this. They did me. There you go. But, but yeah, um, you see, a spendthrift doesn't spend money. I actually spent four dollars on that. You see anybody you knew? Oh yes. Okay, I, I think with, I'll I stop there. With homeless with drug and alcohol uh, addiction for twenty four years. So yeah. Were you glad that you bought it afterward? No, I really didn't think it was, it was something that I was I would spend another four dollars on. Did you pass it on to anybody else? Did you share oh, it? Oh no! Oh no! No no no! This is to start a wood fire next winter. Um, maybe if something. But no, I wouldn't pass it on. In fact, I didn't even pass it on to my husband. 
or tell him who was in it. Right. I don't think we want to go any further with this. Okay. <laughs> I didn't think it was anything anybody else needed to know. Yeah. Thanks for your yeah. call. I appreciate it. Hey, Mark, can I say one more thing that's in the privacy bill people might want to talk about a little bit? That's automated license plate readers and the retention of data captured when you go by, camera picks up the license plate, stores in a database over time, find out where you were. There are about 8 million pieces of data being collected every year on license plates in this state. It's kind of scary. Wow. Amazing. And... and Is that ever used in an investigation that you're aware of? Well, there was a report last summer that looked at that very question, and it has been used in a very few investigations. The question is, is the expense that's gone into uh, buying these systems and operating them justified by the results that come from it? And so far, the answer seems to be no. It doesn't seem to be very useful. Our big deal about it is that we don't think Police should be collecting information about people unless you're, uh, there's a reasonable suspicion you've committed a crime. And obviously, this is collection of information about you on a very broad scale when there's absolutely no suspicion you've, cre- you've committed a crime. So we think the data, if it's collected and not acted on, should be destroyed within 24 hours. We see there's no justifiable reason for keeping it. And police currently have 18 months to keep this on file, and we think that's much too long. How precisely do they collect that? How precisely? How do these readers work? Oh, they work really well. Well, uh, I know, but I mean, how does it describe to me what it, is somebody sitting in a car, like shooting at it, like a radar at your car? No, or usually how, how the does it work? usually the cameras are mounted on the car, usually the hood or the trunk. And if you look closely at some police cars, you can see these cameras now. Sometimes they're sta- they're mounted on some stationary object like a bridge or a telephone really? pole. Yeah. Okay. But usually what they are, they're mounted on cars so that the car can be either... Uh, fixed in one place, just sitting by the side of the road, or the car can be driving around. If it's driving through a parking lot, the cameras can pick up the license plates there. How, I mean, how, how can that be possible? I mean, that's ama- that sounds like an amazing piece of equipment. Well, it does, uh, and it I mean, it cars is. driving by, it can pick up their license plate? At, I mean, come on. At 70 miles an hour. Wow. I think the accuracy rate on these things is about 98%. I mean, that's why they've become so popular so quickly. Wow. The DEA is starting to use them as well. Uh, they've got their own, their own systems, and they're trying to get as many of the states to upload their data into national databases so they have an even greater sense of where you've been. You combine that data with data if you have an easy pass and you've gone through a toll booth, if you've gone on a toll right. road, credit card receipts, where you've bought gas, where you've spent the night at a hotel... You know, you start putting all these bits of data together, people get a fairly good picture of where you've been and what you've been doing. Yeah, I mean, it's not, you know, from what I could see, it looks like you had a great last week, you know, between all the different places you went, the easy passes, the fireworks, I mean. By the way, wh- fabulous. you know, why did you go to the rally of the, uh, yeah. of the Progressive Party? Uh, why did you go uh, to church or not go to church on Sunday or synagogue or mosque? Um, what were you doing at your doctor's? Were you trying to get uh, yet another yet another batch of OxyContin and then you went to another doctor down the road? What's all that about? Can you mm-hmm. tell me, please? Okay, but some of those sound, sound as though they might be good things to know about. So, why? You know, well, I mean, maybe uh, somebody stops you from becoming, a, you know, an Oxy doctor shopper. 
So you want police to be in the role of preventing you from possibly well, committing if you, crimes? Well, if you, if you know, after the fact, if you, you know, I got video of you going to four different ones in, in 24 hours, that's information I might be able to use. Actually, doctors can already figure out if you've been getting prescriptions from other doctors through the Vermont Prescription Monitoring System, and it's really a health issue. A doctor should be finding out that you're the one who's going to a whole bunch of doctors for doctor shopping. <clears throat> shouldn't be the police. This is, if somebody is that addicted, it really is a health issue and not a criminal justice issue. Let's go to Middlebury. Bill, good morning. Hi, Mark. Um, I have a question about probable cause. A friend of mine had been driving his wife's car, and they, one of the police officers ended up doing one of those uh, license plate scans and ended up pulling him over because his wife's license had expired. Um, he Obviously, his license was, was good, but his wife's license had expired, and yet he was the one driving her car, and they used that as probable cause to pull him over. I was just kind of curious as to the legality of that. I'll hang up and listen to the answer. Thank you. And then, presumably, they find two pounds of cocaine in the car or something. Yeah, uh, it, I guess you're not listening anymore, but the question always is, once they realize they pulled over somebody who is not the person for whom they have information is driving illegally, what yeah. do they do? Yeah. And unless <clears throat> it's a question under Vermont law, how much more you can do when you have that kind of a stop that probably a court would say was proper because that's the way the equipment works. But what happens next is a really big question because what if the cop says he or she smells the odor of marijuana in the mm -hmm. car, which is a very subjective determination? Um, would that be legal? And there are a lot of questions around this, mm -hmm. whether that becomes the basis for suspecting the person has committed a crime. We've been uh, chatting with Ellen Gilbert, Executive Director of the Vermont Chapter of the ACLU. 244-1777 is our local number. Toll-free 877-291-8255. Moment of our, uh, your time for our friends at Jet Service Envelope. If you're looking for an outstanding local printer, make it our friends at the Jet. You can reach them at 229-9335 on the web at jetservice-envelope.com. You can do the projects in-house or you can farm them out locally here to Jet Service Envelope, a professional printer. They will do a much better job than you will do in-house, and then you can maximize your time doing something that perhaps you're better at than anybody else. 229-9335 or uh, on the web at jetservice-envelope.com or you can just use that time to go through things like, you know, Fireworks Illustrated Magazine. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back with Alan Gilbert right after these important announcements. You've decided to set your roots down here, and well over a hundred years back, we did too. We're Union Bank. As a local community bank, we know all the back roads, the realtors, and how to get things done locally. That means we can make your mortgage easy, because after all, nobody really does mortgages for fun. Well, except for maybe us. And when you call Union Bank, you get a real person with real answers to your mortgage questions. Now, how about that? Full service, local banking with people who live where you live. So whether it's your first home or your second, we'll provide you with nimble, local expertise, competitive rates, and a variety of mortgage options that help turn the imagined into the realized. At Union Bank, we know you want to go far in life. Banking local can get you there faster. Union Bank. Stay local. Go far. Visit us at your local branch or go to ublocal.com. 
Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. Hi folks, this is Jerry Booth. Vermonters drink Booth Brothers milk every day. They know they can trust Booth Brothers for great tasting milk with no artificial growth hormones. It's local, it's fresh, it's healthy. And it's produced right here in central Vermont. In a world that's constantly changing, it's good to know where your milk comes from. 27 local farms with the same goal, only the freshest, the finest Booth Brothers milk. So the next time you're in the dairy aisle, reach for Booth Brothers. Hi, this is Judy Sturmer. You can support the Vermont Food Bank and enter for a chance to win a brand new car for just $5. Thanks to the generous donation of 802 Cars, we're raffling off a brand new car. It's our first ever 802 Cars Drive for Charity, and it's on now. Hi, this is Dave Berman. For just $5, you can win your choice of a brand new Honda Civic, Toyota Corolla, Subaru Impreza, or Scion TC. Because 802 Cars is donating the vehicle, every dollar of every ticket sold goes directly to feeding our neighbors in need. That's 15 meals for every ticket sold. For a list of rules and to purchase raffle tickets, visit 802driveforcharity.org. This is Lieutenant Governor Phil Scott. As some of our most vulnerable Vermonters struggle to make ends meet, you can make a difference by buying a $5 raffle ticket and have the chance to win a new car. Go to 802driveforcharity.org today. All right, back continuing our discussion. We've been uh, chatting this morning. Alan Gilbert's the executive director of the Vermont ACLU. Let's take a couple of more calls here. Let's go up to Moncton Ridge. Good morning, Fred. Good morning, Mark and Alan. How are you guys? Good. Good. Um, what's the procedure, Alan, about uh, if, a guy, if an officer comes up to my car window and he says he smells marijuana? What is the procedure now? And... Uh, does he have to bring in a specialized officer now? I've been told that. A friend of mine got had a, had a marijuana card, got picked up, uh, had an accident, and the police smelled marijuana. And um, um, he was, uh, they, didn't, they didn't bring an officer over, a specialized officer. His charges were dropped because of it. So I was just curious about the rundown and, uh, and how it happens. What do you mean? A spe- what, tell me more about the special officer thing. Well, um, I, I was told that if if you get picked up uh, now, that the, the um, they can't do a blood test on the side of the road. And there's certain criteria that the officer has to use. Whether does he see papers? Does he did he see a pipe? Did he smell the marijuana? Did he smell burnt marijuana? Did the subject's eyes look glassy? Okay. Uh, there's certain criteria that this officer, and he has to be specialized. They right. call him in when they think there is somebody under the influence. All right. Let me see what Alan knows about this. Thanks, Fred. Yeah, uh, Fred, you, you encountered <clears throat> or you know about an officer called a DRE, a drug recognition expert. There are about three dozen of these officers around the state. It means they've been trained in a special course that used to take place somewhere out, I think, in Arizona. So it's sort of a big deal for them to take time off and get this training. And it's actually not specifically for marijuana it's for all other drugs as well the theory being that alcohol in this country has long had a specific standard that is used to assert impairment to drive a car you know if you're 0.08 and above it's just assumed you should not be driving and you can get charged 
for marijuana and all other drugs, there is not a similar kind of standard. So the question then becomes, okay, when is somebody who's had several OxyContin, when should they not be driving because they cannot drive without being impaired? It's become a really big question, and police, especially because of the possibility of marijuana being legalized in this state, are asking more and more for authority to do special tests to determine when somebody might be impaired, not because of alcohol, but because of some other drug. To answer your question most directly about marijuana, if, somebody, if an officer sm smells marijuana, that's usually enough for them. Usually the conversation goes like this, so I smell some marijuana. You mind if I look inside your car? They're asking for consent to search your car. If they search your car and find marijuana, you will be charged. Um, if you say, no, uh, I don't want you to search my car, they say, well, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. The easy way is to let me search your car, pop your trunk. We can do it the hard way. We're going to impound the car. We're going to get a warrant from a judge, take it to a barracks, and go through it tooth by nail to find anything we possibly can in the car. Would you rather us do that? And by the way, you're going to have to pay for the tow. So... Um, when it comes to other drugs like, like OxyContin, a drug recognition expert, if he or she is called to the scene, will do some quick tests and probably take you to their barracks where they will do, I think it's a series of 12 different tests, the last of which may include a blood test to determine whether you do have the presence of other uh, drugs in your body. Wow. I mean, because, you know, one of the downsides, one of the, I guess, offshoots or whatever you call it from this whole drug epidemic, there's probably a ton of people out there driving around, you know, on Oxy. Hey, listen, as somebody who rides a bicycle a lot along the side of the road, I think about this a lot myself. So there's a legitimate interest here of making sure that people who are operating a motor vehicle on a highway really should be. On the other hand, we have as citizens legitimate right to be free of unreasonable searches and seizures and finding the balance is a tough one. There was a bill actually this year that Fred might want to know about. It was H-228. It was a bill that would give police to the authority to take, uh, to take what's called a saliva test sample. And there are new instruments being made by various manufacturers that supposedly, if you give a saliva sample, not a DNA sample, a saliva sample, that saliva can be analyzed for the presence of, I think it's up to about 12 different drugs. And that could be used as evidence, supposedly, to show that you were impaired. That bill was... the. the Police tried to have it attached to the General Motor Vehicles Bill to fast-track it through, and the House Transportation Committee said, hold on, this is a bit bigger than, than we want to tack on to the General T Bill, so it didn't, it didn't go anywhere. What, what was the position of your group on this? Well, we're really skeptical about this because, first of all, we think drug recognition experts generally... Uh, a lot of the science there is somewhat questionable. We have the same concerns about this kind of equipment, the science that's being used. And also, how can you, once you measure the presence of a drug, how can you say that so many, so many percentages uh, of uh, OxyContin in your body is really impairing you in the ability to drive? Many people take OxyContin after they've had a tooth extracted, for example, uh, or have had surgery. They take it for a number of days, and, the, and oftentimes people have uh, ongoing conditions for which they take it. And 
I've heard people say uh, that I could drive perfectly fine. I've heard a legislator say that. So it's it's a very complicated question, actually. Okay. On the other hand, you're somebody who rides a bike and you know doesn't want to have somebody drive straight into you too. Yep. So where how do you how do you how do you protect from that? Well, that's that's the question, and that's what police are trying to answer as well as privacy advocates like me. How do we find the balance that's necessary where people still have the freedom to drive when they really should be able to and not be bothered being stopped all the time and and tested by DREs. And police do have the ability to get impaired people off the road. So you would be against the saliva database, I'm probably guessing. Yeah, so far. I mean, what I've read about these machines and the tests they're using is a little bit um, incomplete. And again, there are no standards for saying what level of OxyContin you have in your body makes you impaired, like we have for alcohol. Let's go to Williamstown. Good morning, Rama. Yeah, good morning, gentlemen. Hey, good, I want to go back to the privacy stuff, uh, especially regarding some education issues. But, you know, it's funny you guys mentioned church and all, because I was reading the other day, I think it was New York Times or Washington Post, an article about uh, some large churches using facial recognition technology to help keep track of who's a regular and who isn't a regular coming to the church. Oh. These are churches? Yeah, these are churches. So. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, uh, yeah it, it's, it's spreading. I'm going to hook some up to my house so I can see when I come home and when I leave. But um, I, I, privacy and education issues, you know, everything's heading on to the Internet, and it, it's not just with the what we use with Google Docs and all on the Internet. It's also with the massive amount of storage that is now going on. Uh, at the state and federal level regarding uh, kids and and their education records and uh, uh, kids' education records and primary secondary education includes everything about their lives. Actually, it's medical records, it's education records, it's any reference that it comes up in the setting of school that you know maybe they had some issues, uh, got in trouble for something in social settings and sports and all of this. And this is starting to raise some concern among folks who, you know, are talking about this on a regular issue. And I know here in uh, Williamstown, as we had, uh, well, actually it was the Orange North SU, that we just did a education records policy. And part of the discussion was there was a line in there that originally that said that uh, education records are the property of students and the parents. And I know I was one who brought up the issue that, well, no, they really don't, and it would not be honest to put that inside of a policy mm. statement like huh. that. And after some discussion, as we did agree on uh, education records are primarily, primarily belong to the students and the parents, because I, I literally... There are so many different people that can say, hey, just like you were talking, Alan, with the medical records, people right. can say, hey, I should have access to these uh, student records. But what is primarily owned by somebody? Well, I mean, that sounds a little... Well, well that, that that's a nod to the fact that federal law does define, to some degree, student and parental rights regarding uh, education records. However... The flip side is, and much like with the medical records, that there are so many outs on that that so many people can have access to these for any a number of reasons, and including tracking into uh, into you know you could the student graduates from high school and graduates from college and where they end up for a job. That's literally what they're looking at being able to track, and that's no exaggeration. That is the plan. 
All right. Let me have Alan comment. Thank you for your call. Yeah, this is a really big, evolving issue. Ram is right about that. It gets, well, the main protections come through what's called FERPA, the Federal Education Records Privacy Act, and it generally does say that records about a kid's schooling are the property of the parents and the um, and the, and 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 the kid, uh, especially if the kid is eighteen uh, and is no longer just a minor. What happens, though, is that you start schools start collecting records mandated by law often that begin to get into areas where other privacy laws or access laws may apply. And the collection of health information about a kid is one of those areas. This came up during the debate about vaccines this past session because schools have to schools have to know if a child has been vaccinated and they keep records of that. As soon as you get into the medical records area, FERPA doesn't apply so much, but HIPAA does. The Health, right. Insur- the health Insurance Portability and uh, Access Act, uh, I'm sorry, Accountability Act. HIPAA has different rules about privacy protections than FERPA does. And before you know it, you're getting into tussles between medical people, school officials, and parents about who should have access to what. And Ram is right. There is a heck of a lot of information that's being collected about kids. There always has been. But now it's being put into systems that are owned by private vendors. They're loaded up onto the cloud. And you got the same thing you have with medical records. It's the information is out there, supposedly protected. Only people who are supposed to have proper authorization can access it. But uh, there's a lot of information about about your kid out there now, if he or she is in school. And it's pretty obvious that there are people out there that are willing to compile it and put it into a publication and try to bang people for four bucks for it. Yeah, I mean, they would be violating privacy laws in most cases if they they took that data and they published it. But, again... um, with the medical records, one of the things that you have to contend with is you right now don't have a private right of action. If if there's unauthorized access, you have to complain um, to the to to the federal government, and it's been quite lax in prosecuting uh, people who who uh, get access to medical records without authorization. Getting back to the very beginning of I think the. Uh, Rama's uh, comment, if a church is collecting via facial recognition software information about who's coming and going, you want to remember they're a private entity, they're not the government, so they are not subject uh, to the same privacy laws and privacy protections you would have otherwise. Wow. It really is something, though. I mean, have you ever heard anything so wild as that? I don't think I go to that church anymore, Mark. Yeah, I mean, I, don't I, I get that our name might be written in a great big book up up there somewhere in the cloud, but I think that's a different cloud I'm thinking of than the digital cloud where the information is coming. Right. Same sheep when they put up and say, you know, Alan hasn't made his pledge for this year either. You know, yep. shaming. It's all, you know, I mean, all more and more, I think, newspapers are really, it is just all about shaming. That's what it is. I think we should bring back the Puritan's ducking stool and put it by the river in, the, in your town and if you want to shame somebody, you put them in the stool, duck them in the water, bring them back up. Yeah, or the, the locks, the stockade. There we go. We could do that, town too. Square. I mentioned at the top of the hour, Edward Snowden, the Justice Department, is saying that there is a possibility that he they might work out a plea deal with him. And, and the new attorney general is saying that the information that he presented 
spurred an important and needed conversation. What do you make of that? Josh? Well, I mean, the federal government actually confirmed what Snowden confirmed many years before Snowden did. The former uh, Homeland Security Director confirmed back in 2008 that um, indeed the NSA had been collecting what's called um, phone records, the, the, the directory information. And it was, that comment was made by, was it Michael Chernoff? Chernoff, I think it was, in a, in a conversation with a Texas newspaper because of, I don't know if you remember this, but in 2006, there were big stories about how the NSA was collecting this information. We actually, we and other ACLU affiliates tried to work through our Public Utilities Commission to find this a violation of phone companies' privacy agreements. And the federal government moved in and shut down those inquiries by the public, in, in Vermont, by the Public Service Board. Shortly after that, uh, it was confirmed that indeed the NSA was doing it, not officially, officially. Nobody had the real information. And the issue, if you remember, eventually Congress absolved the phone companies of any liability for any civil suits filed about this. And the issue sort of went under the radar until Snowden came along. So Snowden confirmed what most people who had been following this issue really already knew. It, 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 wasn't, it wasn't a big surprise to me because we had been following this case closely and had been st shut down by state secrets. And I, I remember saying to myself when we, when we got the order that it was being shut down, it's going to take a whistleblower to really blow the, blow the lid off this. And that's what Snowden did. So I think Snowden is being made the sacrificial lamb. And who knows what kind of a plea deal the guy can get. The ACLU has been working with Snowden. Um, He's been providing advice to him. So we're hoping that somehow he can... Uh, regain his rights to come back to this country and be treated as a as much of a normal citizen as he can be. Let's go to South Carolina. Whit, good morning. Well, good morning, Mark, and we missed you while you were on vacation. My goodness. Uh, no one can do quite as good a job as you, Mark Johnson, so there you go. And now I've given you my compliment for the day. How about the uh, month? There you go. One of the things about the ACLU is is that law, I think if I could do my life over again, I just turned 70, I think I'd, I'd get a legal degree. Because I'll tell you what I'm fighting down here in South Carolina. I have a miscreant neighbor who owns guns, all sorts of guns. And he lives just 300 feet from me. He has a backyard firing range. He has used the gun for harassment many times. Uh, and he's not mentally entirely stable, and yet there is no law apparently that will uh, strip him of his guns. Uh, I've called the sheriff. He's threatened me many times, and uh, right now in this county, we're looking at a law that would in some way put the kibosh on these backyard firing ranges and firing weapons, discharging them in residential areas, which to me as a public safety issue seems absolutely so common sense. How could anybody uh, believe that it could be anything okay. other than common let, sense? Let me interrupt because our time is short. Okay, what, what I'm you, sorry. No, 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 no. Just, uh, I want to comment on what oh, he knows okay, about Vermont cool. on this. Go ahead, please. 
I, I, I really can't address this, Mark. I mean, it's from South Carolina. And well, what do, we, do we have anything like this? What's the privacy in Vermont on something like this? Well, we have uh, our basic constitutional protection for a person to own a weapon as an individual is completely different than it is on the federal level. I have no idea what the South Carolina either constitution or state law says about this. Uh, and people should also know I'm not an attorney. So anything I might say on this could not be construed as legal advice in any way, shape or form. Must have been pretty happy to hear about the uh, gay marriage decision. Yeah, it was a really big decision. Um, you know, we've been working on this in the ACLU actually since the 1970s when the first gay marriage uh, claim was made before the U.S. Supreme Court and was lost. Um, it was the Windsor case uh, last year uh, before the Supreme Court that paved the way for the decision we had this year. So it was a big deal. Thanks for coming in. Happy to do it. Alan Gilbert is the executive director of the Vermont chapter of the ACLU. You can head to their website at acluvt.org if you would like to get more information. We'll take a break here for news. We'll be back for hour number two. Love to hear from you next hour at 244-1777 is our local number. Toll free 877-291-8255. This is FM 96.1 WDEV Warren and AM 550 WDEV Waterbury Montpelier. News is next.